Tonight, people, I'm not going to lie to you. This is the episode when Writer's Block Podcast, J.R. Havlin, that's me, does whatever is the opposite of jumping the shark. This is it. This is the one. This is where we turn a corner and just keep getting better. At least, hopefully. I don't want to put the kibosh on it or anything. I don't know. Maybe I just did. My guest is the one and only Ed Helms. Hey, the guy's got to promote his tiny movies somewhere, you know? Now, you may know Ed as an actor, of course, but he is also a very committed and focused writer. In fact, one of the first things we talk about is how he submitted many years ago to be a writer on The Daily Show. That was his dream job at the time. Of course, he didn't get that job, but another door opened and a year later became a correspondent on the show. And I think it's safe to say that things panned out pretty good for him after that. But we're not going to talk about acting so much. We're not going to talk about the hangover and what the monkey is really like when the cameras aren't rolling. Although, for the record, apparently spends all his time washing cats in a sink. Who knew? Ed and I focus very much on writing. Ed wrote a screenplay himself some time ago, actually with two writing partners, and talks about how that process is different from writing alone. We do talk about how acting and improv can affect the writing. Uh, Ed has directed a couple of episodes of The Office, so we discuss what effect that has on the final product. But this is a very interesting and insightful episode about the writing process that I'm really proud to have on the podcast tonight. I really think you're going to like this one. Whatever you do, don't bail before you hear Ed talk about the Duplass brothers who wrote and directed Jeff Who Lives at Home, which Ed starred in. It's riveting to hear how these guys make a movie. And then, as usual, we close it out with a little spontaneous funny business. Mirth-making, if you will, on a couple of random newsworthy topics. Ed even helps me out with a stand-up routine I've been working on, and uh, we make it better, which is nice. So settle in, blockheads. This is a big one. You're part of the writer's blog now. Let's do this. Touching things. Got it. I have, I have the ability to hover, so. What do you got there? I just bought this. It is a beautiful, I'm just going to show it to you real quick. I'm very excited about it. Barometer? Hygrometer. You bought a hygrometer? It measures the... Can I just guess what a hygrometer yeah, is? please. It me- it's a high, um, high Latin for... Uh, tall, uh-huh. grometer. It it's, uh, it measures how t- it's got to measure how tall you are <laughs> in meters, you, and how much you grow. You hold it, and it measures how tall you are. It, it measures your growth in meters in sense of tallness. Mm-hmm. High high grometer. Exactly. Yeah, well, good. Or it may, or like, what's your version of? Or what, what it is? says on the dial. Oh, <laughs> or that it's a certified <laughs> hygrometer and temperature indicate indicator. Percent relative humidity. Okay. So why I have, is it not a humidifier? Well, that adds humidity to the air. This measures the humidity of the air. Oh yeah, all right. So as a collector of some fine musical instruments, right? Oh yeah, yeah. I, yeah. Uh, it's very important to me to keep them safe and well hydrated. Yeah. So I pour Gatorade in the guitars. <laughs> I keep and I keep a track of the air humidity with this certified hygrometer. Is there a dryness problem out there that you think would like 
affect your guitars terribly? Well, California is a desert is climate. It? It's technically a desert. You know, there's they got sprinklers, but grass doesn't grow there on its own. It's actually becoming just like the movie The Lorax, where the entire town of Thneedville yeah, is, is drying up. Turf. Well, no, it's like beautiful, but it's all fake. It's oh, astroturf okay. <laughs> and like fake trees and stuff. That's yeah, it's nice. It's, 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 like they actually, LA is actually Thneedville. It's becoming Thneedville. <laughs> and they're. Uh, I like how you slip it right in right away. You get, just get right to like your latest project. You know what? You gotta, you just, you can't stop. You no. gotta always be, be, be beating the drum, man. It's probably worth mentioning that um, I, sh- I need to wrap up soon to read <laughs> next week's script for The Office. Oh, is that is The Office? Which now, that's a, a television show. program. Yes. Am I wrong about that? <laughs> a popular television program? And then, and, uh, tell me if I'm getting this right, National Broadcasting Company? Uh, Did they, are they the broadcasters of that program? That is exactly, that's exactly who does it. Um, and uh, I believe brought to you by TiVo. Well, yeah. <laughs> Nobody watches it on Unless on you have DVR. No. <laughs> well, in case you haven't figured it out by now, we're here with uh, um, Ed Helms. Ed, that I'm getting at right. Uh, if some, Ed? Uh, it's, it's such a, it's a strange it's name. Ed or Ede, depending Ede. On, on, on where you're from. Right. It's a strange name. Ed Helms. Star of screen and even larger screen. Mm-hmm. Which is nice. And, your f- and former co-worker of J.R. Havlon, this Junior Havlon. You've got me. It's, I now I'm not sure how to pronounce my name. I got to be honest with you. I'm totally thrown off. You know how that is. You get something stuck in your head, and then I think I might be have to change my name. Well, we I've known you, Havlon. I've known you for I don't know 15 years. Yeah, and I don't know what JR stands for. JR stands for. Do you really? You don't know R? You know J is just an initial. J. J yeah. Yeah, that does. Yeah, I guess there are people in my life who don't know that. I would, I would have thought you might. Rosicrucian. Close, Robertson. (laughs) Rosicrucian. That's a. I think. Didn't he kill Mercutio or whatever? Uh, uh, Rosicrucian was that some Russian sect in the turn of the century? Uh, J. Robertson. J. is just an initial. It actually stands for. Really, technically, stands for Josephine, which was my great grandmother's name. Oh, I was. my parents wanted to name one of the kids after her, but I was the fourth and last. We were all boys. So instead of going with Joseph, they just went with Jay. But that's what the J is for, Josephine. Robertson Havlin. I was Jay? Rob growing up. Do you, you didn't Rob. know that either? Yeah, yeah my friend, everybody in California calls me Rob. Got it. Yeah. I was Edward. Edward. Yeah. And that came, became Eduardo at one point or another. Well, That's all I've known you as is Eduardo. Well, of course... Uh, or, or in some cases, Eduardo. My family calls me Eduardo, which uh, came from a nickname my uncle gave me based on an old film actor named Eduardo Cianelli. Yeah, that's was, right, yeah, because that's what Seuss calls you. <laughs> yeah. Um, so my uncle, Alan, loved just loves the sound of that name. Alan Alan? Yeah. Oh, okay. And so he started calling me. I just assumed our listeners don't know who these people are, so I'm. I mean, Alan, yeah, yeah. You and I Alan, know who they are. No, Alan and Sue. Say <laughs> yeah. everybody knows. Okay, um, but uh, the yeah. So he he just loves the ring of Eduardo Cianelli. So, yeah, yeah, yeah. So he calls me that. That's what. And it just, my whole yeah. my whole family now calls me that. Yeah, why not? Um, 
I didn't really know you before you started on The Daily Show. No, I don't think we knew each other before that. Right. But you were working with the guy I was working with, Rick Dorfman. Oh, that's right. We shared I a manager. That. Yeah, yeah. That's right. And and uh, I knew that... So I was well aware of you because... Um, well, you were in New York. I mean, come on. <laughs> <laughs> I knew... I just knew all the staffs Legend. of all the late night comedy shows mm-hmm. because I... I was obsessed with them, and I wanted to be on them and participate in them. And Rick Dorfman had a client who wrote for The Daily Show. Right. That was your ins. I got you started. You had nothing to do with my getting getting in. You don't know that. That's true. Yeah. I don't. So Are you I, telling me that right now? I'm making that claim <laughs> to be proven or disproven later. <laughs> I, I'm insinuating something. I'm not insinuating. To, I'm making the claim. Ins- okay, you are. No, I am laying claim to your the, the the origins of your success. All right, let's call John Stewart right now. Let's we can put it off. Right. We don't have to do that now. <laughs> uh, did you ever try to get a writing job there? Was that I did? Interest you? Yeah, oh. I, I I I applied. It's really a kind of a funny story, and I haven't talked about this. Uh, well, that's they, what the Writer's Block podcast is for. That's what it's Other all people about, don't man. Care. Yeah. I, I don't think I've ever told this story, but I um, I desperately wanted to be a writer on The Daily Show. And, on The Daily Show in particular? Well, on The Daily Show or Conan or Saturday Night Live. Sure. Okay. And I had writing packets for all three. And I've gone back and read them. I'm really proud of them. Like, there's some great stuff in there. You still have them and you've read them since. Uh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Wow. Well, here's the best part. A lot so, of times that's an embarrassing so thing. So I, um, I sent in a submission to, via Rick Dorfman, uh-huh. to The Daily Show. Um, and I was passed over. A year later, a full year later, um, I get the audition to be a correspondent. This is what, what year? This is uh, 2002. Okay. I got, got the audition, went through that whole rigmarole, and, uh, and it was kind of a, an exciting, scary thing. And, and I got the job, same time as Rob Cordry. We started at the same time. And then uh, I just got to work on the show. And a, probably a year and a half, two years later, the then writer's assistant, Brendan Hay, uh, who was our last episode? There you go, yeah. and is now a very successful writer in his own right. Yeah, um, pulled me aside and he said, "Hey, Ed, I was going through this old file cabinet, and I found your writing submission." Oh wow, <laughs> they held on to it. And uh, do you want it? Do you want it? Yeah. And I was like, "Yeah, I'd love to see it." So I pulled it out. I read through it, and there were notes on it. The gist of which were that the jokes were good, but not. Um, not out there enough, and that was the that was the writing that was the hiring session where Aaron Bergeron was hired. So, oh, <laughs> so so he got the he got the job that I was a, applied for. So Bergeron, uh, who's a brilliant comedic mind and but completely out there. And does he wrote these great comic books and stuff when back when we were at UCB Theater and and, uh, and but it's clear that that he sort of gave gave them what they were looking for at that time, which was someone thinking much more outside of the box. I was I went about writing my packet very deliberately, like within the constraints of the show, right? Very much trying to match the tone and sensibility, and I think. To Aaron's credit, he's like a very creative thinker. And you uh, think that ended up being a mistake? For who? For you. 
Well, I think at that time... As far as wanting to get hired for the show. Well, I think... Well, what's interesting is that Aaron wasn't a fit long-term no, for the show. he wasn't even there for a year. Yeah, so he... So, would I have been a better fit? I, who knows? But um, didn't. But clearly, Aaron's packet is what they were looking for at that right. time. And that, so well, that's that's interesting. That it's like, just cool. You know, that the notes were out there. That that the, the note the, you had notes on there, and it said it wasn't out there enough. And that you admit that you were basically attempting to, you know, you were just mimicking the show. I w- yeah, I was, and I think that, but. I wouldn't second guess that approach. You know, I wouldn't say I did it wrong. I think like it was it was how I approached it, and I and I like I said, I went back and read the packet later, and I was happy with it, and I felt like I'd done a good job. Um, it wasn't what they were looking for at that time, right? And that that's just sort of that's one of those things you just don't control. What was your perception of Aaron how did in what way did... I like Aaron you know he was my roommate for a while and there yeah. was a funny story that I think I told on Brendan's but took out of there yeah and this would have been your um tenure at the show had you gotten that writing job yeah you would have started on September 10th 2001 Jesus your second day would be was Aaron's second day oh my god and uh, um and then he was off for three weeks and came back to a sobbing boss yeah Jesus and all these different things about how we were going to make comedy funny. <laughs> it yeah. was just going to fall apart. There was no oh humor left in the world. God. Yeah. So that would have been your thing. But what I was, what I was, what I thought is interesting, and uh, you know, I've talked about this with various people before, is that idea of doing a submission, and when you know everybody has all the different shows have their their um, what they expect from you. You know, they they have a submission process or something. You're supposed you know do this many sketches, this many of this. And uh, sometimes it's a mistake to just try to mimic the show mm-hmm. and to eliminate, in a way, your own input, you, the extra thing that you can bring there, because that's what they're looking for. They have people that write the show already, right. and that is a mistake. It's a mistake not to. It's it's a mistake to ignore the format of the show, obviously, but it's also a mistake to not put in your sense of humor, your own thoughts, your own ideas, the new things that you might be able to bring that still fit within the framework, but what they're looking for is somebody different than the people that they have. That's interesting that you say that. I, I wouldn't necessarily assume that as there's turnover on writing staffs. And sometimes they are just looking for like someone that can fill, fill a niche or fill like a, a needed hole in a staff. And again, like... You can kind of turn yourself inside out if you overthink, like, oh, how much of this is mine versus how much is the is this me yeah, just trying to right. match yeah, the, yeah. the format of the show. And and I would say that that my packet was something that I felt matched the tone and format of the show, but but also was my my sensibility in a way. Did you get to another state? Did did they ask you to do a second submission or anything no. like that? Was it that no. kind of thing? I don't know exactly what the process was back then, but. Um, so, but then you don't get it, and that's an example of like you know, then then you had you gotten that job, you most likely would not have become a correspondent on the show because they don't do Correct. that. Correct. So it is, you know, I mean that's you just go one of those. through you know, that that's a that's a random thing. But you know, when people say, "How did you get your job? How did you start off in this?" Well, had you gotten what you so desperately wanted, then you might not have what you have now. 
Well, yeah. it would be very different. I'd yeah. just be on a different tra- trajectory. Right. And who knows? I, I, I could be, uh, you know, a heroin addict in Cuba by now if I had, like... If, if you'd have gotten that writing job on the Daily Show. If I'd gotten that writing job on the Daily Show. It you right there. That's the next logical step. That's why I stay. Yeah, yeah. Because exactly. I know what my options are, right. and I don't like it. <laughs> um, well, no, but I guess the point is uh, it's the world is these sliding doors, and, and, it, and when something closes, something else opens. And I was pretty bummed when I didn't get hired. So then how did you get chosen to, to audition for the, for the show as a correspondent? So that came about because I was also doing a lot of commercial work, um, mostly voiceovers for commercials. Uh-huh. As you can tell, I have an incredible voice yeah. for commercials. Right. And, uh, and so I did mostly voiceover work, but occasionally I do on camera uh, sort of comedy commercials, and I just went in countless auditions. And the head of talent at Comedy Central... Um, in New York was aware of me as a stand-up comedian in New York. Uh I had just sort of gotten into that level of not a major player by any stretch, but just kind of on people's radar. Uh And so when the Daily Show auditions came up, they requested my participation in the audition, and it was a huge cattle call. It was like, you know... So you went through a few stages of that because it, yeah, okay. well, it was a three hundred person cattle call at the casting agency, really, and then yeah, and then yeah, I can't remember if there was an intermediate step, like you know we went back for a call back, or, yeah. but eventually we wound up in the studio with John, and there were and, five of you, and one of them was Cordry. Some reason yeah. I thought that was it was Corell, but it was Cordry. I knew that was after Corell. Yeah, Corell was. Basically, had one foot out the door at that point. Right, right, right. And did what? Did, didn't it pan out that like Cordry got hired? Cordry was hired outright from the audition. Uh-huh. I was given a test assignment right. as a as a field correspondent. So it took and another. What was that first field piece? The first field piece was um, an Abe Lincoln impersonators convention <laughs> in Fort Wayne, Indiana which is where the Abraham Lincoln uh, Museum is. So we did this piece. In the writing meetings, I kind of cracked the angle on it, which was we we were going (laughs) to cover it as as this medical affliction of Lincolnism. So these people, they they just they they're all suffering. They came down with something that made them cause them to look like Lincoln, look and act like Lincoln. (laughs) They're all suffering from Lincolnism. It's kind of a broader approach to field pieces than than anything that's that ha- that like it definitely took a straighter trajectory over the next six eight years because that was sort of a broad premise well yeah but i mean but that, but, but the, back then we were doing some goofy stuff yeah. like that 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 we wouldn't do now i mean obviously the show has changed a lot but you mentioned that you're in a writer's meeting and you come up with this thing and we had t- again we talked last night about um about how much of those field pieces is like you were saying, you feel like like every correspondent should be basically listed as a writer because um, they they put so much into that process, and I I don't disagree with that at all. Yeah. Uh, in fact, John Oliver is a writer. Wyatt Cenac was listed as a writer, so we started that trend. Yeah. But not everybody is listed as a writer. Kind of would screw things up in certain ways. Mm-hmm. But 
but which is not to say that that is not a huge part of the process. And, and like you're saying, so you're in a writer's meeting in the first place where you have this idea for this field piece. We just got to figure out how we're going to do it. And you come up with it. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, there might have been three writers there who didn't come up with it. You came up with it. And then when you're out there shooting, you work out a bunch of stuff before you go, but then you're out there shooting and you have to come up with all this stuff. So, that, like, tell me how that, how much of the writing process happens, you know, in the field. At that point early on, uh, there was a lot of writing that happened. You do a lot of homework before a field piece. You, you do a lot of prep with the field producer, who also, incidentally, should, could reasonably be yeah, called sure, a writer. Yeah, sure, yeah, right. Like the field they producers, write all the VO stuff. And so the field producers do, do a tremendous job and a tremendous amount of creative heavy lifting. Yeah. But even of the stuff that you planned, when you get back and look at it, Right. And that's not necessarily good. Yeah. Or usable. So it's a lot of pressure, but a ton of fun. It's kind of amazing. You know, Orson Welles said that the absence of limitations is the enemy of art. And I, I think it applies to field pieces. When you are given the limitation of time and you have to get something. Yeah. You, you just do. Like, you just... Well, that's an, yeah. that's interesting because, you know, the question I get all the time is like that, how do you handle that pressure every day, all those things, and it's sort of like, I, I don't know how to work without a deadline anymore. Mm-hmm. I just can't do it. Yeah. You know? We have five days, five 12-hour days to shoot an episode of The Office. Guess how long it takes to shoot every single Office episode? All 12 hours all of all five days. Yeah. No more, no less. Right. <laughs> it's Somehow. <laughs> yeah. It's just always you, you. You fill the time, and you, you you use the time you have. You pack it into the limitation that you have, uh, and you fill the. So dead you're literally space. like you're, you're you're shooting from eight to eight or whatever it is. Or? Six to six. Yeah. Yeah. Seven to seven, depending on the day. Right. Yeah. Um, and of course, you're not shooting that whole time. But I mean, you you've been sort of absent from the show lately. For uh, you know a lot at least, or doing the remote stuff on the boat and stuff, and yeah, I, I just did. watched the Christmas one or the you know the Schergenglagel or whatever it was. Uh huh. Yeah, I just that you were not at all like, right, except I, for a phone call. I missed five episodes this season because of uh, Hangover Three production. Okay, which so, is done now. Which we finished uh, a few weeks uh, just before Christmas. Yeah. So it'll probably be out in a couple of weeks then. We'll look for that, and <laughs> yeah. it's going to be in yeah. theaters. Yeah, I've already tweeted it. It's going to be in... Th- it's done. It, it, so it'll get some attention. Yeah. Oh, great. That fucking... That's not... We're in a New York apartment, and that's the heat. The going, radiators the re- clanking. Yeah. The, you know what that is? That's like water, like, busting through the radiators. The super told me one. I don't get that. I, I've li- I lived in New York for a long time, and and radiators sometimes sound like a man with a sledgehammer yeah. banging on them. No, but that's it's 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 and like water getting stuck and then like flowing through or something like this is what he told me. Well, it what, doesn't make what, sense. Yeah, what you're saying doesn't make sense. It doesn't make sense, but that's what he said. Water you know? flowing through something doesn't I, make sense. I know, I know. Yeah, like it doesn't but but what makes that sound? Because the only thing happening is there's water a, flowing. There's through. a man the city pays a man in the basement <laughs> no, of every building to really? bang on the heating pipes. Or maybe it is, it is just like a Freddy character down there just yeah. like banging on that letting you know he's coming up yeah see it stopped now he knows we're talking about that's him that's right he knows we're on to him mm-hmm. oh man we're gonna get killed that's it hopefully we can squeeze this in before that happens <laughs> um what can I tell you what can I tell you well I, I wanted to know about like the the 
um, since I want to stick to just kind of like the the, the writing process and yes. stuff, and and so it's like a, as um, as much as you had to do with the with the ultimately the the writing and the creation of the field pieces at the Daily Show, how much of that carries over into television work and film work? You know, I mean, you're in in the office, and a lot of shows uh, they sort of present themselves as very sort of improvisational. Yeah. Um, and yet maybe aren't as improvisational as you'd think, but I'm sure there are opportunities for that. Mm -hmm. And times when just like you do something that screws up a take, but they're like, oh, I like that. Let's do that and do it on another take and that kind of thing. So are you, do you find, we can talk about The Office in particular, that that opportunity is there? Is it frowned upon? Is it something that's encouraged? I mean, what, how, does, how does that go about happening? Well, Obviously, at this point, my career is mostly acting, but I've always tried to cultivate the writing um, at the same time and, and always have a few things sort of churning on the writing front. That but you're writing the, yourself. Yes. Yeah, right. Um, but on the acting side, there is a little bit of crossover, you could say, into writing when we're improvising. Um I don't really consider that writing. I, I I feel like the writers give you... You wouldn't be improvising these lines if the writers hadn't presented you with this entire premise and scene and emotional context. Hadn't, to start created, ha hadn't created this character, hadn't put him in these situations. Yeah. Right. Which is why I think it's a little bit presumptuous when actors who, who may be brilliant improvisers also... Think, think they deserve a writing credit. I, I think writing is so much more than just good lines. It's like creating a good story and good scenes and good context for good lines. Uh -huh. And um, good line, good lines can be effectively joke writing. The movie I did, uh, Jeff, who lives at home with the Duplass brothers, we literally improvised the entire movie, but. Mark and Jay Duplass had given us this beautiful story, and this and every scene had a very. But they didn't write dialogue. They did. That's the thing. They wrote a beautiful script, and as soon as we started shooting, they said, "Do not say a single word re we wrote. Say it all from your heart." Like, wow. just, what else have they done? And and have they always done it that way? They've always done it that way. What else have they done? It's it's, it's a, it's part of what, I th I think. It's part of this um, sort of school of filmmaking that I people call mumblecore, which I think is a terrible name. Yeah, that's terrible. But, um, but it it is this kind of improvisational, conversational style. Um, David O. Russell does a lot that way too. Uh, Bradley told me when he shot Silver Linings Playbook that he did a lot of just sort of emoting and just talking and not sticking to lines, which I think is very powerful and cool. It's like a thrilling way to work. Yeah, right. But, um, but again, is it writing? I but you've already read, so. but it, like in the, in the case of Jeff Who Lives at Home, you read the script, you knew what they had said in the script or what they had planned for you to say or whatever. You knew the story and where it was going. Yeah. But then they said, just don't say the stuff that we said. But you have it in your head, so you know essentially what you're going to say. It just now comes off maybe more naturally and more from you. Exactly. And as long as you're in your character. Yeah. But that seems like a almost more of a challenge. Is that more of a challenge for you as an actor? It's a thrill. Yeah. It's like, 
it's sort of a the challenge is how authentic can you be right. that's always the challenge of an actor you know how real and legit can you perform right now right and when when a director tells you don't use the architecture that i gave you like don't use these words that i just gave you use those words to understand what's happening in the scene right. but then to 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 get your character from a to b use all your own words right and then respond to the other guy in the scene and listen to what he says and respond to that stuff because he's using Did all his own words. Did you know that going into this, that that's what yeah, they're going to do? Yeah, we talked a lot about it. and As, During the hiring, I mean, before yeah, you actually signed on to the project. Exactly. And you asked what their other movies are. They did uh, a really great movie called The Puffy Chair. They did a, a great little movie called Baghead. And the a larger movie right before the movie I did with them was Cyrus. Oh, yeah. Um, which is great. John C. Riley and Jonah yeah. Hill. That's a weird movie. Yeah. It That's is a weird. really weird but, movie. But again, those guys, like, they did that too. It was all improv. Um, and, and what's really cool about it is that it's not necessarily funny. Like, a lot of, I come from an improv comedy background and certainly doing stand up and all that. Most improv that I was familiar with was trying to get the biggest laugh or trying to find the funniest version of a joke. And even shooting The Office or, or The Hangover or whatever, whenever I'm improvising, it's always about trying to be fun, the funniest and trying to say the funniest thing. Right. And, you know, I think that's, that's a lot of how, you know, great improvisers like Vince Vaughn and Ben Stiller and Jonah Hill and Seth Rogen, like, they, they're... They're improvising towards comedy most of the time, and they're great at it, and it's so fun and funny to watch. But what Mark and Jay Duplass really want you to do is improvise natural words and boring dialogue, and they then sculpt a movie out of it. Wow. It's kind of fascinating. And did the mo- was the movie like kind of you know so. When you went through the, this process of making this movie, and then it's out of your hands, it's getting edited and all that stuff. So when you first saw it, was it sort of new to you? Was it surprising to you more so than other projects that you do? Do you know what I mean? Because yeah. of that, we. Um, that's a great question. I don't quite remember. I just remember being so thrilled by it yeah. because um, it's so collaborative and and everything is a conversation with the director. Now, here's an interesting thing. I think you directed at least one episode. Two episodes. Two episodes of The Office. Mm-hmm. So, um, now that's a huge impact on the script in all kinds of ways. Uh, but did you find yourself... Did you have freedom to encourage improv yeah. from people? Did you have the freedom to, like... You know, with, with, did you work with the writer... Yes. Well, every time the way the office works is, um, and I don't work in the writer's room with the writers, so I don't quite have a, I couldn't tell you, uh, their exact process, their process exactly, but, but you had a script, but the, yeah, so the, they, they collaborate on the article, on the sort of arcs and stuff and then, and, and on what an episode will be about. And then they assign the episodes to individual writers who go off and write the episode. Right. And then they work on it again as a team. But that writer who wrote the episode 
is on set for the entire week of production of that episode. Mm -hmm. So the most recent one that I directed was the Christmas episode last year. Right. And Mindy Kaling wrote it. So she was on set right by my side the whole time. And if, if there were things that I didn't think were funny enough or that I didn't get or that, uh, that I thought fought an emotional moment or an emotional arc or whatever, Mindy was right there and, uh, and we could talk about it and we would collaborate on, on how to, um, how to get that across, how to yeah, direct how to, this, how to, to tweak make it. Now, of course the actor is also hard to direct something if you don't understand what it is. Like hard to direct somebody to tell a joke when you don't get the joke. Yeah. I would think. Well, unless the, unless the actor gets it better than you yeah. <laughs> and then they can, then they can deliver it. But it's funny that the office is a show where our, we all as a cast know our characters better than any director that comes in, uh-huh. including directors that come from our own cast uh-huh. like me. So there's not a lot of directing in terms of here's how you should say this. It's more like, what's the best way to shoot this? How, right. What's the best way to get this joke across okay. from visually or, right. um, but there's a lot of line tweaking and, I think like Stephen Merchant directed an episode and I loved working with him because he really did say, he would say like, you know, if you just look to your right at during that line, you know, that, that'll be funny because of it'll throw off this person. And then, you know, and he would have a reason for some weird little direction and it was really smart and funny. And I, I, I just really loved that his instincts in that way. But, um, well, and I, I, I like that idea that like, you know, what, you know, we're, ge- we're getting into a lot of stuff that is beyond the writing level, um, or the core writing level, but clearly, I mean, gaining an understanding of how much of an impact that stuff has on the final product. Yeah. And that's how I'm really fascinated by the Duplass brothers method there. Cause I, I, I love that idea, but it, it seems to me like that would make it almost that much easier to write something because you wouldn't really have to worry so much, stress out so much over specific words or phrasings. Look, there's more than one way to skin a cat and great television. I've, I know three. <laughs> uh, and they're all terribly they're, messy. Listen, they're all disgusting and no, gross yeah. and it's horrible. Not, none of them are good <laughs> and they're pretty much the same when it comes down to it. Yeah. Yeah, um, a lot of pulling look, you and just screaming. wind up with a with a skinned cat. Yeah, and uh, no matter how you do it, you end up with that same skinned cat. And then you're like, "Why did I skin this cat? I right. just have this, and, and it's gross and unpleasant." Right. But uh, but there's great television, great cinema that come from extre- like an extremely wide spectrum of processes, and The Office is a great example of a fairly structured process. We do improvise in the office, but not a lot and not as much as you might think because improvisation requires flexibility with time. If you improvise, it changes the direction of a scene sometimes. It changes how you shoot a a scene sometimes and you have to have time to make those adjustments. If we're in a hurry, which we often are in television, you, you really can't change stick that stick to the script and get it done. So a lot of maybe maybe a few lines or jokes will get changed or be pumped up by an actor improvising, and that's always really fun. Um, 
but it's not a larger sort of it's not improv improvisation in the way that say Vince Vaughn in old school or or Ben Stiller in something about Mary or some of these these things well, like can... everybody has their own processes of doing this, and like you said, you you do your own writing. Like, but at this point, you're doing you're writing screenplays and stuff like that. Mm -hmm. Now, when you started, you were writing with uh, with with Jake and Ian, mm -hmm. your, who you were were your writing partners. Ian is now a, a producer on The Daily Show, mm -hmm. but you wrote with these guys. Um, I don't know how that process goes. I've written thing, you know, I write with people, but. How do you get two people, how do you get three people to agree on what to work on, let alone how to go about it? Well, it, I think it only works, uh, like team writing works best with comedy, and the broader the better. Because uh, it's really all about jokes and trying to one-up each other and just sort of have a little jamming brain trust on, on the funniest version of something. And usually, when the funniest version emerges, you hit consensus. Yeah, you right. know? yeah. So the process is not complicated. We would sit around uh, and and talk about the story and beat it, beat out the whole story. And then it's sort of this fractal thing where. But did you all pitch like different stories to begin with? And, and like at first, you got to start Actually, by saying, "Okay, well, you know here's what? what we're going to make it about." The first the first screenplay that we wrote together was. A, a friend of ours had written a movie about an art heist, kind of a um, Thomas Crown type character, mm -hmm. and like a sophisticated art heist guy. And we said, hey, can we write the sort of Zucker Brothers airplane naked gun version of this movie, of your script? And he was like, yeah, sure. So we had a movie, like we had a story. And then we just... You just had and, to go fuck it up. Yeah, and we just, we just sort of took... Like stripped it down to its bare beats, and then um, came up with games and jokes and scenes for for the whole movie. And then we just with airplane kind of as your model. Yeah, just like the broadest, most yeah, right. ridiculous, it, yeah, insane okay. shit imaginable. And yeah, so so in terms of that team process, it was be, like we would just sort of collectively beat out the movie, and then beat out the scenes and sort of. Uh, jam on jokes about this you know in the scenes and then and then we would parse out writing assignments within oh okay so you, do, you take this and do this and then you work yeah yeah, yeah that's a good idea and, yeah. and so everyone goes out goes off and writes a scene or, or writes you know 20 pages of scenes and then we come back and stitch it all together and then start doing passes through the whole thing um as a group well Usually, then I think we would work on each other's scenes to pair to start compressing them because with comedy, especially broad comedy, you overwrite it like crazy because jokes need so much explanation, and it's just this brutally painful whittling down process. Um, you know, this was our movie was sort of Austin Powers like, and if you think about a joke in Austin Powers, it's so visual. How do you make it funny yeah, right, on a page, right? right? right. So. So, you know, if it's Austin Powers, like, pretending to be a... a Just the way a, he dances or something. Yeah, exactly. How do you write that in a right. fun way? The guy dances funny. It's <laughs> yeah. like, that's not funny enough. So yeah. You have to figure out a way to, right. to have the description without it being... Without it weighing down the yeah. reader. So it takes a million passes to get a joke across 
well in a screenplay, a, a physical joke. And, and, and that was a fun exercise. And I think we got pretty good at it. And, you know, a scene, I remember I wrote a scene that was like a torture scene where this, this, uh, the, the villain. Funny right away. <laughs> yeah. Well, the villain threw the, threw the hero into a, a vat with, uh, full, w- with a giant, uh, Portuguese man of war. And the joke was that when he gets, when, when the hero lands in the pool with the Portuguese man of war, it's just a jellyfish. So it can't, it doesn't actually do anything. It can't attack you. It just floats there. So, so the hero just holds on to the side of the tank and he's not being attacked by the jellyfish. And so the, so the villain is getting angry because <laughs> the torture scenario is not working. And uh, he thought they he thought the men of war would attack him. Yeah, he's and then he starts he pulls out a you know a little um a little stick and starts whipping the the man of war <laughs> like go sting him, sting him, you <laughs> infernal jellyfish. And uh but that's just a dumb joke, and it's actually a joke that uh is predicated on something not happening and not working. So you you really have to sort of think about the math of, well, where's the punchline for the reader on this? Well, like, you know, and how do you, you, there's a way to set that up and then, you know, you pay it off with a punchline of, and nothing happens. Or, or you know, you, you do like a big tension building setup and then, it's not easy, but it's sort of the art of of comedy writing in a way, or of you know broad comedy writing. Right. Um, yeah, and then that then that that that's it's so interesting that that's a part of it. You know, when you start writing the scripts and stuff, like you know, I mean, all the stuff that I write, there's no action. Yeah. There's, you know, there's a little if any action. You know, yeah, uh, um, and we're actually even kind of discouraged from writing in like John does this or something. Right. Sometimes there's a camera turn or whatever, and it might help this or that. But yeah. it's not like that. And it's been a while since I wrote something where I had to describe the action as well and have that also be yeah. part of like what was funny about it and stuff. And uh, yeah. um, and that is it is a fun thing to do and to get right, but it takes as much work as figuring out what the right dialogue is or coming up with the punchline for a for a. Um, well, joke. This is interesting. I'm in. I studied some music in college a little bit, and w- one of the big exercises is to, if if you're listening to like a, uh, you know, a Charlie Parker saxophone solo, to transcribe it, to listen to it, and then write it out. What he's in playing. The music, yeah, in, write in, the music the notes, no, notation yeah. of it. And I remember when I was watching movies early in my twenties, thinking like. I, I need to like I, if I saw something that was really funny, I would think, okay, how would I write that? How would I write? And, and it was sort of this exercise, and I didn't. It's not like I drilled it that much. Like I didn't. That didn't become this habit of mine. But I definitely thought about it. Um, you know, transcribing a comedy scene into text. Like, what is? 
how would I do that? Yeah. In the same right. way as transcribing a Charlie Parker solo. Like, how would I... I wonder if that would be good practice. It would have to be good it, practice. By the way, it is, for sure. Yeah. I mean, it helped me a lot to think so about you would, it. You, but you never did. You, would you do that? Had you ever done that? Where you took, like... I never would actually sit down... You know, you went and watched and, Bananas and tried to write it? Right. No, I never did that, but I would... I what would, a great exercise. I would there. absolutely think, think yeah. about it. And just ah. that thought was... Like, I would think... How would I write what what I'm looking at? Yeah, yeah. And just that thought process was helpful. Does that still come into your head when you're doing that? Is it just part of? Not so much. Not as much. No, now it's a little more instinctual. Like Mm -hmm. having written a lot of comedy screenplays now, I I, I sort of have a vocabulary that that works for me. That's not to say that it, it. Hard part about writing a script is walking away. Because it can always be better. It just yeah right. And but that's a level of maturity yeah. that that most of us strive for. Yeah, because <laughs> it's so hard to have something you've worked hard on get internalized and changed by someone else. Some especially if you love it. And sometimes it's really hard to take notes that that just go against something you're passionate about. But that that I think is the hallmark of 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 a mature and frankly employable writer is someone who can swallow that pride and um, and just roll with the the changes that inevitably will happen to your to to your precious babies. Right, right. You know your little comedy babies. That they you give them to, to you give them up for adoption every day. Right, yeah. <laughs> And they get turned into these different things. Well, um, speaking of which, now is the time in the uh, in the podcast where we we make with the funny. Uh, the first topic is the trillion dollar coin. Is this a real thing? <laughs> this is going to make it a little more difficult. <laughs> so here's the story, and but that'll make it fine. You know, I want to know what you think is funny about this. Like, well, how how what. And it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. Like we don't have to write a joke. It's just uh, a sure, matter sure, of like sure. how you. Let's talk about so it. the trillion, the trillion dollar coin. You haven't heard about this. The trillion dollar coin is something that uh, um, even Robert Reich, like, uh, has has suggested to Obama. Like that this is like a, a gain, gaining legitimacy. The idea that Obama he he has the right to mint a trillion dollar coin, put it into the treasury, so the treasury is a trillion dollars richer all of a sudden. Uh huh. So that they then use that money that they supposedly have to pay off debts or to do to do other things and then take it back I, I don't quite fully understand but the funny thing to me is that they continuously talk about it, it it's just a trillion dollar coin <laughs> it's, it's just, just a trillion single, dollar coin well what i thing. think is what where i where i would probably go the road i would go down in thinking about that is that all currency is is something that has intrinsically no value that we just assign value to. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And so, you know, like a dollar really? bill, it's only worth a dollar because we say it is, because we've assigned <laughs> that. And so the idea of just so arbitrarily taking the most preposterous value imaginable, Why not? which is a trillion dollars, <laughs> and assigning it to a little piece of metal is... 
Isn't absolutely it, astounding. And it, and it well, kind of it, invalidates the entire concept of currency. Well, but it's, I think maybe maybe what's funny about it is that it, just, it, sh- it shows you how absurd it is that a dollar is a dollar. Exactly. I mean, it's, it's yeah. exactly the same so thing. Saying, you can say like a trillion dollar coin, that doesn't make any sense at all. How much sense does a dollar make? Exactly. What, what, is, what is that exactly? It invalidates the concept of currency. <laughs> I like that. So they, so they, you know, they think it's going to help them out of some kind of bind, but all they're doing is just completely yeah. like it. it well, now it makes everything meaningless. Well, it, it also if you can do that, how can you even do that? That's the idea. Like what? How it's can you magic. Do that? It's literally <laughs> magic. It's right. a coin trick. It's a coin trick. <laughs> it is a massive coin trick. Yeah. Well, that would be the best. That's if they do a trillion dollar coin. The, only way that Obama can present this to the public is by pulling it out from behind someone's exactly. ear. Exactly. <laughs> and if anybody has the ears to pull a trillion dollar coin out from behind, it's Obama's ears. Yes. So well, there, there you go. go. Yeah. Perfect. <laughs> um, here's a fun thing that happened today. They announced the inductees to the Baseball Hall of Fame. There was a new class, and this class is the steroid class. It's like McGuire, Sosa... Um, Clemens, mm-hmm. and nobody gets in. They, the, all of the record-setting players. Yeah, these none, guys who are it's no them. brain. It's a no-brainer. Yeah. And, right. and then actually, one thing I was thinking of is that the it's the Hall of Fame, and these guys these guys are famous. You know, they're famous. We know who they are. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's not the Hall of Guys that didn't do didn't do steroids so they could hit more home runs. Why aren't the guys who didn't do steroids and got a few less home runs. Shouldn't we be celebrating them? Yeah, <laughs> the ones who who were not roided out during the the roid yeah, there, phase. There's at least there's like there's a, a guy that has they, like ten fewer home runs than McGuire when he's like, and he's yeah. sitting there like, hey, what the hell? Yeah, and so it'd be great if it was the Hall of Fame uh, announcing you know ceremony and they open it up and they unveil and it's like five names nobody's heard of it's a, just a bunch of random people. It's these Bruce five Johnson yeah. and, and, then, and it's like everyone's like what and then they have to explain it like well Bruce actually hit a lot of home yeah if you take roids out of the equation Bruce would have been the guy yeah. that had the most like we're runs. gonna we're gonna say like here's the, the here's the standard right here but you that 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 this is what McGuire did over his whole uh, over his career. Right. So, but we have to bring it down to here, and then we find the guy who had those stats, <laughs> right, exactly. and we put him in the Hall of Fame. <laughs> and then like, why not just the, do that? Then when we make the announcement, we ha- also have to. It, it has to be accompanied by this long explanation of yeah, why yeah. that guy. Well, it's funny because, <laughs> and obviously, they think that it gives them a certain amount of advantage. Like that, you would have, you would have been. If look, if McGuire, if McGuire is up to be in the Hall of Fame, but without ster- but he's not getting in because of steroids. And without steroids, you assume that he would have been, he would have had, he would have been like thirty percent less effective. Then find those stats. Find the guy that hit that level without steroids and put him in the Hall of Fame because clearly he's a Hall of Famer. There you go. And his name is Fred Stringer. Dun- Dun- Dunzerdorf. <laughs> Dunzerdorf. <laughs> but we're proud to announce Major League Baseball. Proud to announce the inclusion of the Hall of Fame, the Cooperstown Fred Dunzerdorf. <laughs> Very tepid applause. Yeah. What did he do? Well, he did 40% less than what McGuire did. Yeah, read this explanation. Yeah, it comes with a a full... It's a lot of stuff. Um, All right, so now one more exercise. All right. And this is a new one that I'm going to force on people on my show. 
um, I want you to help me with a bit I'm working on. <laughs> okay. <laughs> as long as I have you here. So, um, so the, the, the bit is I, I have this whole thing about how old I am. And that I don't, uh, um, I, I haven't, I haven't grasped onto it because getting older is a harder thing to, is a hard thing to, uh, to, to glom, come to terms. Yeah, yeah, come to terms with. And um, and within that bit, I say exactly that, and I say it's it's a hard thing, and it that it doesn't matter how old you are, you know, it's hard to it's hard to accept getting older, unless you're five. You know, like if you're five, five-year-olds don't sit around going, oh, I'm turning six next week. Oh, right. you know, like that. And, but then what I want to do is go from five up to 48 where I am. Uh-huh. In those, in, but I want to hit those stages of like the different feelings that you're getting, gotcha. the different stages that you're at. Because when you so and 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 butt in any time because yeah. the well, bit is somewhat. Well, yeah, so, so the, the next obvious one is when you're 15 and you're turning 16, it's like, yes, I can drive. Well, that's just it. That's, that's then, exactly it. I was thinking, like, there, there is a period. There's, a, there's yeah. like a honeymoon period where yeah. you're happy to get older. Right. Now, so, and, and the, the first one, well, 13, you're a teenager. Yeah. You know, uh, like 16, you can drive. 21, you can drink. 20, 18, you can vote. 21, you can drink. Well, After that. Nobody cares about voting. Yeah, right, right. Nobody's psyched 18, to turn 18 to, skip to vote. That. I can't wait to turn 18 so I can vote. That's right. Dude, that's this is the, the best thing that ever that's happened to me. That's the reason I can get drafted. Yes, the, the only reason that I'm so, I, the only reason I'm psyched about turning sixteen is because I'm only two years away from voting. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> and the um, and twenty one is just the, that I've been voting for three years now. Right. And it's the best best birthday it's, ever. I mean, it's my third anniversary. Also, I can drag, go out and get yeah. hammered, but I can, but I have been voting for three years. It's my third year anniversary of voting. Um, so, but then the idea is that after that, there's really not a lot of looking forward to points. Right. It's right. all kind of downhill. Sure. The first is that you become you graduate from college, you're 23, 24, or whatever, and you you're 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 watching your favorite team, and you realize that the quarterback for your favorite NFL team is younger than you, and you can't accept that you can't believe that. Mm-hmm. This is when you first start yeah. feeling old. Right. Because you realize that this guy is your age or younger. Right. And then you realize like, holy shit, that, that's, I didn't know that I was supposed to have accomplished shit by now. <laughs> right. You know? Right, right. Or uh, the first time you go to the doctor and your doctor is younger than you. Your doc, well, I get that. There's, yeah. yeah, there's, there's that, that one, I, I saved that one for later. The, 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 the next step was, your later 20s, 26, 27, mm-hmm. whatever, um, you're past that, but now you're the same age as your gram- as you remember your grammar school teacher was. And she was old as shit. Yeah. You know what I mean? So then uh, the idea is that like, then you look through, I, I grab the, uh, um, you, you get your uh, yearbook and look through it like, I can't believe I'm as old as fucking haggy miss. Yeah. Holy shit, she was hot. Right. <laughs> How did I not hit that? When do you start? There are so many hilarious milestones. Like, when do you start calling 25-year-olds kids? Right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like, yeah. Oh, he's a, he's a great kid. Yeah, yeah. You know, like that... Yeah. Well, the first yeah, time that somebody calls, you know, like right around, you know, 30, 30s, early 30s is, is usually around the first time somebody's going to call you sir. Yeah. yeah. Which is the same kind of thing. Yeah. And that's usually when you start calling people kid. Yeah. I, uh, I'm just now in this transition 
mode where I am I'm as old as people are assuming I am. Okay, you finally got to that point. <laughs> like I'm catching up with the assumptions. Oh, yeah, right, right. And and that's uh, but now I'm at this point where, you know, I'm getting offers to play dads in right. in movies and things, and I'm like, wait a minute, I wait, when did I'm not a dad? And you well, know, that I think uh, I think I love the idea that like. You know, that within this bit, I can say, then you get to be around 40, and that's when you start getting offers to play dads in movies. Exactly. You know? Use <laughs> yeah. that. Yeah, Use right. that, JR. Because you want everybody. <laughs> it's relatable. <laughs> it's totally relatable. Yeah. I mean, then, then you're like, what? You want me to play a dad in a movie? <laughs> I think I had at like 35 or so, you now you're uh, at 30, you're, you start running into friends who have kids and a, and and a home, mm-hmm. you know, and you are you're like two payments away from getting your Xbox off layaway, kind of thing. Like, <laughs> yeah. like you know, because you're still living. And then you get to 35, 36, and you're the same age as the guy at H and R Block who does your taxes, right? You know, and he's a fucking loser, right? You right. Know what, I mean? what about the transition from being sort of young enough to assume that everyone older than you has their shit together? You know what I mean? Like, like when you're in your to 20s, realizing that they don't. To, to realizing that they want to be that, you. That you, you're, you're that old, and oh my god, you don't have your shit together. Yeah, yeah. Well, that's a that kind <laughs> like, of, that that works for that that kind of idea of being thirty and every and the, yeah. the guy does have his shit together, and you're like got your Xbox on layaway. Right, I mean, right, that's right. the concept. But that's the transition because, like, in your twenties, you don't care if your shit's together, and you look at thirty people in the thirties, and you assume. That they you have their shit together. They have their shit together. Then, then you get there and you, you realize, oh. And then there's this transition where you start to, to be the guy who feels like you sh- sure as shit should have your shit together by now. Right. And yeah. you don't. Yeah, right. And that that's like a very uncomfortable thing. Well, a lot of times that just kind of never ends, I think, for a lot of yeah. people. Because then when you first turn 40, you can still pretend like, oh, that's like late 30s. Yeah. You know, you can still hang right, right, on right, right. to whatever yeah. like shred of youth you had left. That's what I that's, that's get, where I am. You get into the mid you get into the mid forties and you have to let that go. And I think my joke for the mid forties was that like you have to accept that you're a certain age now, but and that you can't now, now is not the time to start wearing Ed Hardy t-shirts. <laughs> exactly, <laughs> and yet for a lot of people, it is for some reason. Yeah, yeah. Well, for, and then, and then, so then they can get into those reasons because then I get to forty-eight where I am, and then I have a whole bit about that. But uh, uh, anyway, so that's uh, that's that, and um, I think we're done. There you go. Um, all right. Well, let's uh, let's pretend that we're wrapping this up cleanly. Ed Helms, Jr. Um, Havlin. Yeah. What a uh, pleasure. Thanks for thanks for doing this. I mean, uh, I, I know that I had to like me. I, I, I had to I had to marry your cousin five years ago to to to, <laughs> to rope you into this, but uh, but it really it planned out. It it the really long term plan was perfect. Out. I now, think uh, I think we changed some lives tonight. I think I think we may have. Um, listen, good luck with your burgeoning career. Thank you. I think things are going to turn around, and that it's really going to go well for you. Um, and I'm glad to have gotten it started. Well, you you know what? In a lot of ways, you did. Jay. The Havlin Springboard. Yes. All right, Back and hopefully this, uh, this, uh, um, this, uh, 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 this hangover, the hangover. How many now? Is this the three? We're actually hangover three. Well, we just broke the story, and for uh, for. 
for number 709. Oh, it's obviously working on it. But it's three kind of, is coming out next. And it'll get that uh, it'll get that writer's block bump that you guys are looking for. <laughs> and I think it's going to take it over the top. i got to be honest <laughs> with you. Ed Helms, thanks a lot for being here. My pleasure, JR. Bye. Adios.